Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew. Um, and Daniel 6 is on page 743 of that Bible. So we're in the last of the narrative portions of the book of Daniel. And many of you will uh, have much experience with this passage. Uh, It's otherwise known as the passage about Daniel and the lion's den. So we're in a series called Watch the Throne, Earthly Empires and the Coming King. And it sort of expresses the tension that exists between the already of God's kingdom and the not yet of God's kingdom. It's sort of like being engaged. The commitment's there. The ring is there. Everything is there except everything. And it's like a weird in-between stage. And that's kind of where we are with God's kingdom. We're engaged. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is coming again at some point. And so we're in this wiggle stage. And oftentimes we, we can sort of despair in that and we can get distracted in that. And yet the scripture calls us to remember God's kingdom. Christians should work at Amazon. They should thrive. They should do a good job but they should not find their ultimate worth and identity working for Amazon. Christians should also vote in the primaries this week, but they should not find ultimate fulfillment and hope in politics. Christians should be in America, but we should not be of America. Let me explain. So Jesus has come. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He resurrected in a glorified, physical, immortal, perfect body. And he ascended into heaven where he sits, like we learned, at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, God's kingdom, like I mentioned earlier, has begun. It has been inaugurated. But it has not been consummated or fully realized. It is real. It is growing. It's an actual thing. But it's invisible. This means that there are plenty of competing kingdoms to God's kingdom on earth, including the nation we're in right now, including our own selfish kingdoms that we seek to build every day. When God's kingdom is fully consummated, there won't be any other kingdoms vying for equality. The competition will be over. The invisible will be made visible, and everything will be set right. In the meantime, because it has not been totally realized, God has sprinkled ambassadors for his kingdom all over the planet. Those ambassadors, a.k.a. Christians are to be in the world, 
but not of the world. How do you do that? What does that even mean? Those ambassadors are to invite everyone, all people, into God's kingdom. But the problem, much like the problem um, for the exiles from Israel in Daniel's context, is that we either become in despair over the state of things in these kingdoms, or we become hopeful and distracted by them, and we forget about God's kingdom. If we're feeling bad about the way America is right now, we despair. If we're feeling good about where America is right now, we get distracted. Either way, our focus on Jesus and his kingdom wavers. There was a time when Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, asked Jesus for permission to step out of their boat onto a sea that was at least probably 50 feet deep. So he walked on water with Jesus. But he started to notice there was wind, there was waves, there was a storm afoot. And he got, he just looked around and he became fearful. And he began to sink. Imagine that feeling of like, I am walking on water, I am not walking on water. (laughs) He's frightened. And Jesus reaches out, pulls him up and says, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? But Peter could have easily gotten distracted, not just by the fear and the despair, but also by, I'm walking on water. This is awesome. See it, Jesus, and like, just start doing his own thing. And even then, he probably would have sank. The thing was, he lost his focus on the important thing, the important person. And we as Christians forget that our job is not to build an earthly kingdom but a heavenly one. Daniel, believe it or not, he's like 80 or 90 right now. He's an 80 or 90-year-old Jewish Jewish exile-turned-prisoner-of-war working in Babylon who was fed to a pride of lions for remaining faithful to his God. But yet he was saved by his God out of the lions' mouths And this led to a pagan king understanding the ultimacy and the permanence of God's kingdom. It was a miracle. And this was written and presented to the exiles. This is what you need to hear. This is what a despairing and distracted people needed to hear. And the truth is, we are no different. We are a people waiting for deliverance from a broken world from broken families, from broken selves. We are awaiting the ultimate reality of Jesus' kingdom. We get despairing. We get distracted. We are just like those exiles in Israel. There's an invisible kingdom that we cannot see. They couldn't see it. So here in chapter 6 of Daniel, we find out why we should faithfully remember God's kingdom in the face of living in other competing, and lesser kingdoms. So rather than become despairing or distracted, Christians should faithfully remember God's kingdom because God's kingdom seeks the flourishing of our world 
because God's kingdom does not require striving, which is good news, and because God's kingdom will last forever. I'm just going to repeat that. God's kingdom seeks the flourishing of our world. It does not require striving, and because God's kingdom will last forever. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 5 to start with Daniel chapter 6. Now it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Let's pray. God, as we read your word, as we read words, Lord, that we've perhaps heard before and a story that we've become familiar with, let the power of it and the newness of it strike us once again. Lord, and if we've never heard it, may this pierce into our hearts. Lord, may we grow to ever understand and ever perceive the reality and the realness of your kingdom as we stand here in the midst of other kingdoms. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christians should faithfully remember God's kingdom because God's kingdom seeks the flourishing of our world. So Daniel, he's in his 80s, maybe 90s by some estimates. He's been in Babylon for over 60 years. And he's on his third brutal dictator. He's alone. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have family. And he's been serving the kings of this world day in and day out for his entire adult life. And so this new king, Darius, he decides to reorg his leadership structure. And as is common with Daniel, Daniel makes it to the top tier of leadership. He's been here before with prior dictators. And further, as is common with Daniel, he does well. He thrives. See, this is sort of a corporate setting, and I can't really see myself here because I'm not a corporate guy. Like, when people work in the corporate world and they do well and, and they're like, just doing it, I'm like, hats off to you. I'm just going to go be a nurse and, like, help people. But I, I cannot do that. I really respect people who can thrive in that environment. And Daniel could. And our narrator tells us how. It says that an excellent spirit was in him. And this is sort of a, a miniature version of, of things that the book of Daniel has already described Daniel as which was a man in whom dwells the spirit of the gods. Or some say, in whom dwells the spirit of the holy God. And so his connection with God was common knowledge in the previous two kingdoms, two cabinets that he sat on. 
And this one was no different. God has blessed Daniel with extraordinary aptitudes, administrative gifts, and of course the ability to receive power from God and to do miraculous things. So he has 40 of these uh, what are called satraps. Um, The word just means protectors of the realm. So they're kind of like governors that are out in the midst of the empire in different cities and provinces. So 40 of these guys beneath him, because he was one of three presidents, you know, over 120. And they were reporting to him, it says, so that the king would suffer no loss. And so Daniel, he's like a detailed guy. He's making sure no money is lost. He's making sure things go efficiently, smoothly, and he's really good at it. He's so good at it that King Darius says, you know, I know you're only like a third in charge, but I'm just going to like scrap these other presidents and make you the main guy. And that's where the trouble begins. So these other guys, these other presidents, and many of the satraps do not like this. They're like, This guy's taking our promotion. We got to find a way to make that not happen. They don't like him squeezing them out of the promotion that they want themselves. We find out later that they're probably prejudiced against him because of his ethnicity. Later, when they bring a charge against Daniel to the king, they go out of their way to say, this guy's one of those Jewish people that came from the exile. Why do they feel the need to say that? They're prejudiced against him. They had to come up with a plan to get Daniel out of the way. So, plan A. Find out some way or reason why he shouldn't get the promotion related to how he performs his job. We should be able to find something that he's doing wrong or negligent or some way that he's not that great of a guy but we find that plan A fails. At verse 4, it says, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found. Faithfulness to God's kingdom for Daniel also meant faithfulness to the position God provided for him. All of us Christians have a place where God has put us. And if you're wondering where that is, I'll help you. It's wherever you are right now. Wherever you are tomorrow, this week, that is where God has placed you. And that is where faithfulness to God is important. It's not some job or career or family that's in the future. It's whoever you bump into right now. Daniel was 100% faithful to his secular position in this pagan kingdom. And not only that, no one can find anything wrong with how he was doing. The NIV says that he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. The prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles. And in it, he says something really fascinating. He says, and these are the words of God, he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you in exile. This is an awful and terrible situation. But God says, where you're going, seek the welfare of that city. This pagan, this brutal, this unjust city, kingdom of Babylon, and then Persia. Seek the welfare of that place as my people. Daniel wasn't just getting by in his secular uh, political administrative position so that he would have kingdom opportunities. He was viewing his kingdom ministry through the lens of where God had put him. He went after it with all his energy and skill. Sometimes we think that in order to be a good Christian in the workplace, we need to sort of strategically fit in different Christian-y things. And there is an illustration that uh, others have given about a Christian shoemaker. And how do, you, how do you be a good Christian shoemaker? Do you, you know, lift up the flap and sort of put a little cross in the, in the lip? Or do you make it so people actually trip and fall and then they'll figure out their need for God? No, you just make amazing shoes because God is the creator. He's made us in his image to make things, to create things, to, to make humanity flourish. That's how you be a Christian shoemaker. Does this describe us? If you're one of, of us that have secular jobs, are we putting all of our energy and our skill into those jobs? Are we actually trying? Do we consider the city and the world that we live in to be worth our efforts to cause them to flourish? Daniel is a short book. It's only 12 chapters. But Daniel, as we see, had a long life. He lived till his 80s or 90s. Who knows, actually? It doesn't really say when he died which means that there are vast amounts of time in Daniel's life that aren't in here, that aren't Scripture material. They're just him living a normal-ish, as an exile-turned-prisoner-of-war, life, working his butt off. And who knows if he saw a lot of fruit from that. We see that he rose to the top of each kingdom that he was a part of, but then those kings continue their brutal ways and policies. So it's easy to set him up as this, you know, super spiritual man of God, which he was, seeing visions and interpreting dreams. But we have to remember that he also had long seasons of life that were just normal. It doesn't mean that Daniel wasn't connected to God during this time. Absolutely not. We find that uh, in verse 10, he has a consistent and robust prayer life, disciplined, daily, walk with God. I was just fascinated and, and floored reading through the book of Daniel because later when we get to the visions and the amazing things that he sees, most of them are introduced to him with this. God says, you are greatly loved. 
Let me tell you something. He says, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Let me tell you something. Daniel knew God's love for him. And he walked with God through monotony, through normalcy for a long time. We should faithfully remember God's kingdom because God's kingdom seeks the flourishing of our world. And we should care. So plan A for these guys fails. They were not able to show that he doesn't care. They were not able to show that he was negligent in his duties. So they got to go to plan B. Plan B is to force Daniel to choose between the law of his God and the law of the empire. Maybe that'll work. So secondly, in Daniel 6, we learn that Christians should faithfully remember God's kingdom because God's kingdom does not require striving. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 9. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So Daniel's coworkers come by agreement, which, okay, what does that mean? The word means mustered or they came thronging, as your ESV footnote might say. The picture is one of a group of idiots coming up with an awful plan together and thinking it's a good idea and then going and doing it. It's groupthink. Many of us have witnessed it firsthand or read about it in the news. A group of, most probably more often than not, men getting together and saying, oh, we should go do this. Kill the beast. Let's go storm the... It's just, what are you guys doing? You're being stupid. Why? That's the picture we get here. These guys are just all riled up. Oh, this is Daniel, he's a Jewish guy. We hate him. Let's go figure out a way to get him out of here. <laughs> they come to the king full of jealousy, and they get their way by stroking the king's pride with flattery and by lying to his face. Look at that. They say all the prefects, all the presidents are agreed. All of them. I'm pretty sure Daniel didn't sign on this thing. He wasn't in agreement. And yet they said, all of us are agreed. Yeah, don't ask him. They tell him that every single person on his leadership team is unanimous. They purposely set this, at the time, in the, the culture, this irrevocable law where if the king signs a decree, it is in cement. You know, it's, it's in Sharpie. It's permanent. And they set it up against another law that they knew Daniel 
held to. And because it stroked his ego, and because he blindly trusted these officials, King Darius casually signs their terrible idea into law without thinking twice. Let's keep reading, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to, to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Reading this section, you can almost imagine that it's actually Darius who's about to be thrown into a den of lions because he's so stressed out. He can't sleep. He skips his nightly Netflix binge. He's much distressed, and he sets his mind, it says, all day to try and rescue Daniel out of the mess that he himself is responsible for. Here in this passage, we have the most interesting contrast of two people encountering and dealing with their own personal crisis. Daniel is facing capital punishment for openly praying to God, while Darius is facing the capital punishment of someone he trusts with his entire kingdom. Granted, he's not the victim here, Daniel is, but he is a victim of his own sin. He's a victim of his own foolishness, and he's stressed about it. So first we see Daniel's response. Verse 10, there's a new law signed by the king, and he goes home and he prays, as he had done previously, it says. So in a sense, for Daniel, nothing really changes here. Here's a law that forbids any prayer other than to the king, and Daniel says to himself, I got to pray about this. 
We are not told how he feels, what he thinks, until after he's rescued. But we can safely assume he's talking to God about the situation. In verse 11, it says he is making petition and plea before his God. He's probably asking God to do something about it. God, it's illegal for me to pray to you. Can you, like, figure this out for me? Help me with this. It's very ironic. (laughs) Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, okay, Daniel, it's easy. Stop praying. For it's just a month. Pray in your head. Or at least shut the blinds so that they're not wide open for all to see. I wonder if Daniel's thinking about a similar situation that had happened to his three friends probably decades earlier with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were saved from the flames of a fiery furnace after refusing to bow before a giant statue representing King Nebuchadnezzar. Or the correct pronunciation I just learned is, Matt? (laughs) Sorry, that was just, had to do it. (laughs) They refuse to bow down before this statue, and King Nebuchadnezzar gets so mad. He's just boiling with anger and rage, and he throws these three men into a furnace that's heated seven times more than it should be. And yet, these guys don't get burned. They don't get singed. They don't even get hurt. They're actually hanging out and having fun with Jesus. In both of these stories, as we'll find in Daniel 6, and then with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we find these Jewish exiles that were willing to maintain their no and their yes in the face of immense pressure to forget God's kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego maintained their no. I'm sorry, but no. And Daniel maintains his yes. I'm sorry, but yes, I have to do this. He cannot give up on his, prayer, his private prayer life. This practice of prayer is what got him through the previous two brutal dictators. He wasn't about to stop now. God had delivered him again and again and sustained him in exile. Now, he's not looking for a way to offend his boss, but no law in any empire could convince him to compromise the one relationship to him that actually mattered. Okay, so now look at Darius. He's just sort of going about his business in a self-absorbed daze. Oh, you want a new law put in place? Okay, let me hear about it. La, 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 you're amazing, you're amazing. You should be God. Okay, la, 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 la. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll sign that. That sounds good. Did it, it. He's just sort of, yeah, great. Anything to make me look better. But then in verse 14, the reality of his foolishness hits the fan for him. It says, then the king, when he heard these words, which were the words of the charge brought against Daniel, in the unchangeability of his sentence. He was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. The reality hits him like a ton of bricks. He's like, 
What? I like this guy. He's like my favorite guy. What did I just, what did I do? It just catches up to him. He's an emotional wreck. He's running all around the palace trying to fix it. He sets his mind. He spends all day trying to rescue him. Daniel is prepped for this. He's been through similar things. He's had a loving relationship with God for decades. He's seen great things amidst secularism, against monotony, against exile. He knows God's going to show himself faithful, whether it means being saved out of this future suffering or through it. God's going to be faithful. I don't, I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to strive. I do need to talk to him about it. Darius is not so ready for this. He's been tricked by his own cabinet members into executing his favorite person on the team. He's affixed his unchangeable signature to this foolish law, and he can't do one thing about it. One commentator sees the irony of his situation. He says, Darius signs a law elevating himself to divine status, but it makes him do things he doesn't want to do and be a puppet for his officials and a dupe of his own law. How many of us can relate more with the reaction of Darius than the reaction of Daniel? What do you do immediately when crisis happens? Do you set about all day and into the night to fix it? Are you an emotional roller coaster like I am? in those times? Our striving, our striving, no matter how urgent, cannot fix it. I've told this story before, but I've got a college pastor, Craig Finley, who, he was actually here a few weeks ago. He did the worship service on the Wednesday night. He told a story one time where he was ripping out his driveway. He's using a jackhammer. And at the end of each day, he started to notice that his jaw really hurt, like, really bad. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, maybe, like, my body is sore, or my arms, or my abs, or legs. I don't know. But why is my jaw hurting? It has nothing to do with it. And then he realized about toward the end of his project that every time he was on his jackhammer, he was, like, clenching his teeth like really hard, like almost as hard as I do when I grind my teeth at night hard, which is, if you've ever slept in the same room as me, quite an experience to hear. It's like a weird, eerie thing. Never mind. Um, Don't worry, I have a night guard. Um, He's clenching his teeth, and he realizes, I don't have to do that. I can just stop clenching my teeth while I jackhammer that'll fix it. (laughs) Some of us are like that in our lives. We're striving, we're trying, when in reality, our striving and our trying has nothing to do with the end result. Because God's kingdom does not require striving. God's kingdom is a gift. His citizenship into his kingdom is a gift based on something that you cannot do. You 
You can't fix your problems by clenching, clenching your jaw a little harder. Darius is busy striving to make his kingdom run smoothly and comfortably, and he cannot do it. Daniel is a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be threatened even at the prospect of a brutal executionary death. Daniel had his windows looking out toward Jerusalem, and that, that wasn't a mistake, or a, sorry, not a mistake, but a, the narrator didn't include that for no reason. Jerusalem, for the Jews, was where God's promises will be fulfilled. And he had his windows open, he had his mind set on the promises of God. Crisis hits, and Daniel, free of striving, goes straight to God and his promises of faithfulness to Israel. He, Darius retreated to fixing things himself, and he was powerless. The chapter mentions three times how the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot go unchanged. And when Darius threw Daniel in the lion's den, he fixes his seal on the rock that covers the pit, which means... You know, the gavel has hit. The sentence is done. Nothing will be changed. But Daniel knows that a more permanent kingdom with more permanent laws is still in existence. His kingdom does not require us to strive to attain it. It will last beyond. So Darius reluctantly, though he does, give the order to cast Daniel into the pit of hungry lions. What a thing to have. I mean, to have like a fiery furnace to throw people into is one thing, but to have a pit full of lions to throw people into? And they were probably starving. Probably like these scrawny lions that are just ravenously hungry. And so Darius gives the order, but in the process, it's really interesting he whispers to Daniel a prayer. Verse 16, he says, May your God, who you, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Darius begins to see Daniel's faith still there in the midst of this awful situation. And it causes Darius to, to even express a feeble faith in this God. Clearly, Daniel serves God continually, not just when it's convenient, and it makes an impression on Darius as he casts him into the lion's den. All right, let's finish out the chapter and see, see what happens. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then, this is the, the moment, Daniel spoke, meaning he survived 12 hours in a pit of ravenously hungry lions. Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So lastly, in this last passage, we learn that Christians should faithfully remember God's kingdom because God's kingdom will last forever. Here we find the miraculous deliverance of Daniel from a pit full of lions, and this is to the exceeding delight of Darius. We also get Daniel's words and his thoughts for the first time in this whole story. And what he gives us is two reasons why God delivered him. First, in verse 22, Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So it's first because he was blameless. He didn't do anything wrong. What he did, pray, was not wrong. It's fascinating here because Daniel did indeed break a law. People weren't supposed to pray to anybody, God or man, other than King Darius for a month. And the first day, Daniel prays to God. He broke the law. But yet he declares himself innocent in the matter. So this is cool. Because it is in line with New Testament teaching that, yes, all of us, we are to submit ourselves to the authorities that are in place over us. Yet, however, when these authorities are in conflict with God's commands to us, we are to humbly, gently, and submissively disobey. Now, there's nuance there. And it's really powerful. Peter and John, two of the disciples uh, of Jesus and who were helpful and, and, you know, Peter and John, they were in the temple and they uh, healed a man in Jesus' name. And then they began preaching about Jesus to the, all who would listen. And they were arrested. They were brought in for questioning, brought into custody, and they were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You're not allowed to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And the response is a very gentle but firm no. 
They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is what was so powerful about Martin Luther King Jr.'s policy of nonviolent protest during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Peter and John were unwilling to compromise the gospel message that they were compelled to share. But, and here's the, the kicker, they were perfectly willing to suffer the consequences of their disobedience, including imprisonment, physical suffering, and ultimately death. When laws of empire come in contrast with laws of God, we obey God, but we submit to the consequences. One commentator describes this righteous disobedience by Daniel. He says, By putting loyalty to God above loyalty to the state, he has been loyal to the truth, and thus more loyal to the state than those who make of it more than it is, and certainly than those who use it to serve their own ends. This law exalted a man over God, motivated by human pride and jealousy. The question is, which law is supreme? Which law is going to last? Which law is more permanent? Daniel had a clear conscience about breaking this law because it was in conflict with a higher, more important, and permanent law, God's. So we see in Daniel that humble Godly disobedience is not violent, it is not obnoxious, it is not self-protecting, but it also isn't afraid of being seen. Many of us are afraid to let our faith be seen outside these walls. I'm talking about at work, when you gather with family, when we gather with friends, when our coworkers ask us, what are you doing over the weekend? Do we rush past what we're doing over the weekend, which is gathering together in worship of God? I found that the most common small talk at work are these two questions. On Monday and Tuesday and from Wednesday at 8 a.m. until 2, it's, so what did you do over the weekend? Okay. And on Wednesday from about 2 through Friday, the question is, so what are you doing this weekend? It's either looking back on the weekend, looking forward to the weekend, but the question is always the same. How about your weekend? What did you do? What are you going to do? <laughs> and oftentimes when I get asked that question, I'm like, should I tell them about church? I am going to church, but maybe I should just tell them about the camping trip. This isn't a legalistic thing, like every time someone asks you about your weekend, you better talk about Jesus. <laughs> but are we afraid? Are we letting fear inform our lack of communication about our personal lives? Are we, are we afraid to share with our coworkers because we're afraid of getting into trouble? I get the impression that most of us think that because of our culture in Seattle, that it's illegal to talk about Jesus anywhere outside of church. That's kind of the feeling I get. 
and the feeling I, I have myself sometimes. And I, I don't think I need to emphasize that sharing the good news about Jesus is never supposed to be obnoxious. It's never supposed to be pushy. Right? But if you've cowered like me from sharing your faith because of fear, talk to God about it. He loves you dearly. And he also loves each and every person that you bump into during the day. And he loves them. He wants them. He wants their heart. And he may use you. What if you ask God for an open door to share Jesus with a coworker? And what if he gives it to you? Don't you think he's going to protect you in that moment? We do not have to be afraid. Just like your salvation, think of theirs as a thousand tiny steps toward the creator and person who loves them more than anyone else. Think of their salvation and think of our opportunities as opportunities to bring them one step closer. If you're not a Christian this morning, the law of the state, the law of the country is likely of large importance to you, and it should be. It was important to Daniel. But we are in a country and a world that will by no means last forever. It just won't. But if we as humans are going to last forever, like the Bible teaches, then there's a higher, a better, a more permanent kingdom whose gates are open to any that desire citizenship. And this is a citizenship of a country that is permanent, with a ruler that is loving and a ruler that is just. He will welcome you into that kingdom even this morning. And so we see the next reason, verse 23, that Daniel gives for res his rescuing. He says it was because he had trusted in his God. Ultimately, this is what saves Daniel not only from the lions, but even from his own sin and the sin of Israel. Trust in God's promises, which last forever. God's promises of a kingdom that will last forever. Of course, Daniel wasn't entirely blameless before God throughout his entire life. As Scripture clearly teaches, none of us has not gone astray. No one is righteous in and of themselves. We're not blameless either. We've forgotten God. We've strived to fix ourselves. We've strived to fix our circumstances. We labor until the sun goes down, and we still can't rescue ourselves. But we can, like Daniel, trust in God. And because Daniel trusted in God totally and completely, God preserved his life in the darkest of circumstances. Now, we see in verse 24, and I'm sure many of us winced as we read it, that the policies of this empire regarding punishment for the family of evildoers went unchanged. 
So Darius destroys not only these schemers, but their families as well. And that was the case in those ancient kingdoms. But Darius then pens a new edict and includes a term for God that he's never used before. He calls Daniel's God the living God. Now Darius has seen this firsthand because he was just elevated to the status of God. Divine person to be prayed to. But he couldn't even do anything. But he noticed right here And he was exceedingly glad about it that somebody could. Daniel's God could. And Darius couldn't help but tell his whole kingdom about it. And so as Christians, we should faithfully remember God's kingdom because it calls, one, for the flourishing of our world. Second, because it does not require striving. And third, because it will last forever. But how can we faithfully remember God's kingdom? How can we avoid the pitfalls of despair one minute and distraction the next? How can we see an invisible kingdom in the midst of ones we can see? The exiles who this book and many others were written to couldn't see God's kingdom. They couldn't see God's promises. It was invisible to them, and and through Daniel they were encouraged to place their hope on God's faithfulness. And just like Darius, we have seen God work. He has shown himself faithful. We can call him the living God. How? Why? Who else do we know who is maliciously accused, who is convicted by trickery and scheming, who was arrested during prayer, who is declared innocent by the authority, yet condemned because of popular vote, who is thrown into a pit of death, who had a stone seal him inside, and yet was found alive at dawn. Jesus was thrown into the pit, and he was not rescued because he was the rescuer. Jesus was the living God, become man, and destroyed for our sins, but resurrected for our eternal life. Christians can remember God's kingdom in the face of despair, in the face of distraction, in the face of being here, and there's so much going on because God has been faithful to us in Christ. Are you despairing? Jesus is making and will make all things new. Are you distracted? Jesus is the only one who can fulfill your deepest longings. Are others around you despairing or distracted? We can remind them. Remind, remember, remember, remind. That's why we go to church. That's why we meet together during the week. That's why we fellowship, to remember, remember. I think I'm quoting Lion King now. Remember. That's why we gather, to remind ourselves and each other of the glory and the hope and the excitement and the invitation of the one true king, the one true lawmaker, the one true kingdom of all time and forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your kingdom. 
Thank you that you are the king. Jesus, you are the king. Lord, we're distracted. We're despairing. We're stressed. We're striving. Thank you that your kingdom does not require that. And your kingdom, citizenship in your city is a gift purchased by your blood and one available to any. Help us to remember that and to remind each other and ourselves of that every day. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.